Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, Phil Landides. I want to thank you for joining us for today. I uh, hope that you enjoyed uh, episode one last week where we discussed Shamrock versus Gracie. Uh, but on episode two, I am really excited to welcome uh, the the founder, the the CEO, the the promoter of Strikeforce, Scott Coker, who is now the current president of Bellator MMA, and I am I am super excited about this. I worked for Scott for a while. Uh, I actually met with him um, before he did the the heavyweight Grand Prix, and uh, he he showed me kind of what his ideas were for that, which was really cool. Uh, and, and so he always just such a great guy, a joy to talk with, somebody that loves martial arts and MMA just so passionately and, and just a great guy. And so this is an awesome conversation where we delve into kind of the history of Strikeforce, Scott's background in kickboxing and karate, and then how he worked to get MMA uh, approved by the California State Athletic Commission and how he wanted to be the first one to run an event, how he had planned an event in the late 90s and, and then one in the early 2000s before finally getting the nod in 2006. We talk about the last Strikeforce kickboxing event and then again uh, what it was like putting together the uh, the 2006 event that kicked everything off for Strikeforce MMA some amazing stories, including uh, the cage, literally the physical cage, getting it, and how Cowboy Cerrone saved Strike Force. We get into all that in just a second. Stay tuned. All right, on the line with us, we've got Scott Coker. He's the founder and former CEO of Strike Force, the current president of Bellator. Scott, thank you for joining us today. Hey, my pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's an honor, and I'm I'm sure that you know. Hey, this was uh, Strike Force was your baby. This is something that I'm I'm sure you enjoy. Or at least I hope you enjoy talking about. Uh, yeah, of course. But I want to delve into kind of the the background, your background in kickboxing, and then you know promoting through Strikeforce. And as I was kind of digging in, I, you know, I saw that you founded. It looks like you founded Strikeforce in about 1985, um, from what I saw. And you were a you know you were a, a tw I think 21 when you promoted your first was it karate or uh, uh, or kickboxing event? Is that correct? You know what. Um... It was a kickboxing show, and at that time, uh, ESPN had just started, and they had a show called PKA Karate. You had to wear the long pants, and you had to have a mullet, <laughs> and you had to do eight kicks per round. Okay. And uh, that's kind of this old style of, of, you know, kickboxing back in the day. And so, um, you know, I was actually with a friend of mine uh, that had some contacts in the um, in the industry and he said hey do you want to promote a fight and I said sure let's do it uh, how do you do it and he said I don't know I said well I have no idea how to promote <laughs> and I think I was 21 at that time we started planning it and I was like let's just go for it tell them we'll do it so we signed a fighter by the name of Felipe Garcia who was sponsored by Coors Beer at the time and uh, he fought a gentleman by the name of George Angot from Oxnard um, and um, it was a the first kickboxing fight uh, that I promoted was, I think, March of 1985. And that was the fight. And it was at the San Jose Civic Auditorium here. We had no TV. We had no sponsorships. It was just a uh, a fight, you know, and people came. And, and I think we had about 2,500 people in the audience that night. And how I promoted it was I just went to all the martial arts schools that I knew. And I went to the schools that I belonged to and asked them to support us and, and help promote it and sell tickets and and basically it was just a live event promotion business like you know like a, a concert and so basically I went and hustled and 
and worked really hard. And I, and I think I made, I think we had, I don't know, I can't, I think we all made like seven or $8,000 that night in, in our little partnership group. Right. So yeah, I read, I read that you had about, I think it was, you walked away with about 10 grand after, after all the, everybody had been paid, everything had been done. That's what I read at least was that it was about. Yeah. And, and so, you know, listen, I was, uh, at that time I was still going to uh, a junior college year in town. I go, Hey, forget college. Who needs college? I'm going to be rich. Being a fight and, I bet uh, you felt rich getting 10 grand at that, at that age. Oh, you know what? It's, it's like, you know what? Who needs college? I got the same dial, right? Don't worry about it. My mom was like stressed out and she was like, you know, I don't want you to do this. And she just was very adamant about, you know, me sticking to school. And my brother at that time was uh, just graduated a uh, master's degree from USC. And so, you know, growing up having an Asian mom, it's like very much like you got to go to school and you got to go study and you got to, you know, be a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. That Anything less is total defeat. Right? You're, you're the black sheep of the family, I assume. So definitely the black sheep of the family. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but my father was like, look, if you really love it, why don't you give it a shot? But it wasn't anything full time. I mean, really, it was just kind of like uh, doing two or three fights a year, and uh, I was teaching part time and going to school. Uh, you were teaching. Part-time. You were teaching karate, right? Yeah, at uh, Ernie Ray Senior School here, West Coast Martial mm-hmm. Arts. I was teaching at his school, and I was teaching part time, just privates here, or or I was teaching in the, at the class, and he was. Uh, you know, he, we, would, we would teach class for him at nighttime. Uh, and that was kind of my life, but it was always revolved around martial arts. Uh, and that's really something that I've always loved. It's, it's, and I don't know what it is about it, but uh, I know what it is now. But I, at that time, you know, signing up at his school at 11 years old, going up through a martial arts, you know, uh, foundation uh, and uh, you know, learning life skills in martial arts and all the things that really martial arts stands for is really what I loved about it. And so the fight promotion was completely different, but I said, Hey, this might be a little business. And then eventually we grew it. And then that, that was not called strike force at the time. It was called PK okay. karate. And we had a company called West coast productions and West coast productions ran these shows. Uh, and then the following year at 86, um, we got an opportunity to do a fight on ESPN and ESPN rolls in uh, with PKA. And it was a fight between, um, Don Nielsen, not Don Wilson, but Don Nielsen versus Bad Brad Hefton at the time. Okay. And he was like a big star. Don, I mean, Brad, Brad Hefton was a big star back in the day. He uh, had quite a career and, and uh, he did quite well. And it was, it was an amazing fight. Stand, it was really standing room only, standing ovation. It was, it was uh, quite, quite electric. And so, you know, I promoted these fights. Some were on TV, some weren't. But it really got me to understand the business of, being a local promoter because that's really what it was at the time was just, uh, you know, understand the, about the venue, about insurance, about advertising, ticket selling, staff, you know, promotions, uh, athletic commission. I mean, really it was like going to school uh, in the promotion business at such a young age. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but how much would you say, uh, you know, obviously you're still based in San Jose. You've been there for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. The early, you know, what we're going to talk about the Shamrock versus Gracie card, but obviously you headlined that with Frank Shamrock, who is, you know, local San Jose legend. And then people forget Cesar Gracie's Bay Area as well and has been there for years and, and is still there as well. But you seem to kind of vacillate between bringing in the big names from the outside. I mean, the next event, uh, Revenge ended up being Vitor and, uh, 
Alistair Overeem, two guys with no local connection. So how much do you think that kind of the early, you know, promoting local, bringing in local fighters, connecting with the local schools and that sort of thing, how has it evolved and, and how have you kind of stayed true to that throughout your career as a promoter? You know, I, I think if you look at the geography of the Bay Area, you're talking about a lot of martial arts influence here. And I think it really comes from when, when let's say Asia migrated into the States, right? Immigrate, immigrated into the States. It was, um, it was through San Francisco, through Seattle, and through Los Angeles. And with that immigration came martial arts, right? And there was a time where you're not supposed to teach martial arts to non-Chinese people, or, you know, there is like this, you know, reverse racism, so to speak, you know, <laughs> in, in that sense, right? Because um, it just wasn't accepted at the time for you to share your knowledge of martial arts to anybody that wasn't, uh, you know, either with Chinese or Taekwondo and Korean or Japanese. So it's kind of like a kept society. And I'm talking about 50s, early 60s. But by the mid 60s, I mean, people had schools and, and people, you know, the, the, there was a, what, I read an article one time said, um, the Korean invasion. And my, my original uh, teacher, uh, Ernie Reyes's teacher, his teacher, Master Choi, who was our original um, owner of the school, uh, he came over in 66 with a team, Byung Yu, uh, Master Choi, three other fighters. So it was a Korean national Taekwondo team to come here to fight. I believe they fought Ron Marquini, Joe Lewis, like all the top Americans versus the Koreans at the time. So he, he came here, he fought, and then he stayed, and then he opened a school. And, uh, you know, it was the Bay Area was a hotbed for martial arts. I think at one time, look, I was looking through you know, the yellow pages back in the day, right? <laughs> What's and that? there was there was probably a hundred schools within a fifty mile radius of where I lived. And I said, you know what? That's these are the people that are gonna come to the fights and these are the people that are gonna support it. These are the people that have fighters in the gyms that want to come fight. And that's really uh something I love about the Bay Area because it has such a uh, eclectic uh diversity of people that live here and when I when I look at the martial arts, the different styles of martial arts that are here uh, it's impressive because honestly, back then it wasn't like, you know, you're an MMA fighter or you're an MMA teacher. Basically, it was like you're the kung fu guy, you're the judo guy, you're the taekwondo guy. It was styles versus styles. Everybody thought they had the best style: the kajikenpo <laughs> guy, the kenpo guy. You know, it's like. And then what MMA proved throughout the years was that you need to have a little bit of everything to be a well-rounded fighter and a well-rounded martial artist. So uh, that's. But the background and the roots of it. You know, that's the history of it, I feel, is that it just migrated as the, as the Asian communities moved here and, uh, and the Hawaiians moved here because there's a big population in Hawaii, uh, people that already studied martial arts. You know, it was Ed Parker uh, growing up doing martial arts. His instructor was Professor Chow, who was from Hawaii as well. But, um, you know, it's, it's, as it migrated here, the Bay Area blew up as far as having a foundation of martial arts schools. And... And, and, and for me, for kickboxing, that was our, our uh, you know, our fan base. So uh, let's kind of talk about you transitioning from kickboxing into MMA. Obviously, UFC kicks off in 93. You already had Pancrase, you know, around over in Japan at that time. When did you first come across MMA? And, and I, from what I read, kind of getting into the later 90s, you were already wanting to transition and put on a, a, an MMA event in uh, 
in California or in the Bay Area specifically? Kind of what, what was your, yes. your genesis with MMA? I want to say in, I want to say in 1999, it might have been 97 even, we worked out a deal with the Athletic Commission. It was not, yeah. I read Brian Johnson fight. Yeah, it was 97. Yep. So it was 97. So it was a modified rules, but we really wanted to do an MMA fight. And, and so it would be half a kickboxing card, half an MMA fight card, but the commission wouldn't allow it. So they said, well, you could do what you call an exhibition fight. And that was between Brian Johnson and a gentleman from Seattle. I think he was from Maurice Smith's school. And we put this fight together with modified rules. And then the commission said, okay, we don't, you know, I don't think they understood it, honestly. And so they were like, no, nah, we don't, we don't want to do this anymore. But that was my, my first attempt because, you know, as a fight promoter, I felt like, look, why can't, you know, why can't MMA be legal? I mean, you know, the way I explained it to people was, look, besides the ground and pound aspect of it, it's really judo, jujitsu, taekwondo, kickboxing, boxing. It's like, it's just a bunch of different martial arts. That which are, are, which are all legal, which are all legal individually. That's right. Yeah. And you know what? If you think about it, they're all Olympic sports now, right? right. right? Taekwondo, karate, uh, Muay Thai is not, but boxing is. Judo definitely is. And so if you put it all together, I said, this is all stuff that's allowed in the Olympics, except for the ground and pound. But this is, you know, as close as you're going to get to a real self-defense situation. And I think, you know, we should, we should legalize it. People just did not understand. They had no idea. And we did that uh, in our ring. So that was not in the cage. And I think that uh, it was more acceptable visually by people that don't understand the sport to be in a ring because – Oh, this is, is this pro wrestling? Is it, you know, is it boxing? Is it kickboxing? Right. Is it, you know, it's a hybrid. And uh, originally, uh, when Strikeforce was created, it was supposed to be a ring sport as well. Because I was oh. coming off of my, um, my uh, let's say my K1 days and my, you know, all, I was a fan of Pride, watching all those great fights. And they were all in a ring, so I wanted to do a ring. But it was the State Athletic Commission that told me, okay, Listen, you've been a fight promoter here for 22 years or 25 years, whatever it was at that time. And they said, we're going to give you the first fight. And I said, great, I'm going to do it in the ring. No, no, you can't do it in the ring. <laughs> I said, why? Because we only have the uh, cage approved for MMA. And so that's really why Strikeforce became a cage sport instead of a ring sport uh, because the athletic commission wouldn't, they said, allow it. So that means somebody else would go in front of me and I wouldn't have done the first fight, but I would have got the ring, but I had to wait six months mm. for the, to get approved. I said, no, 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 I'll just become a cage sport. And that's, that's really what happened with, uh, with Strike Force. So I got to ask about the cage. Um, and then I want to, uh, I want to jump back to uh, getting back or getting into MMA, but speaking of the cage. So from what I, what I read, uh, Donald's cowboy, Donald Cerrone saved strike force. Is that, is, is that, actually... it is such a true statement. Let me tell what you happened? Why. I had a friend named, well, I have a friend. I still have a friend named Sven Bean, mm -hmm. right? Long time Sven, MMA manager. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, he now works for LFA. I believe. And so, uh, he was helping with K1 at the time and we were, we we're friends. And I said, look, I need to get a cage somewhere because I don't have a cage and I don't know how to rent a cage. So, there's nobody around here that has it. I got a bill one. He goes, oh, I got a guy, you know? And so I go, okay, well, where, where is he? Oh, he's in um, Tennessee. He builds professional cages. Okay, so we ordered a cage, right? And he's late a week now. Now he's late, late two weeks. 
He's like three weeks. I said, Sven, I need you to go over there and I need you to pick this cage up and drive it over here. And I said, I don't care what it costs because we have a fight like the following week. He said, I can't do it, but I have a guy that can do it. And I said, okay, we'll pay him. We worked out a deal to pay him. So he drove to Tennessee. He from Denver. He loaded the cage, made sure every all the pieces were there, and then he drove it from Tennessee to San Jose, and it arrived probably three days late, not because of his fault, but because of the manufacturer's fault. And that driver was Cowboy Stroni and, <laughs> and his buddy, which I didn't even know. I didn't know who you know. He, well, I he, was, he was. I mean, he wasn't a big he fighter. Just started. Yeah. yeah, he was just starting at the time. So he had to make a little extra money. You know, you can't blame him. <laughs> it's a good gig. Yeah, it was. And I, I read it was you and Javier Mendez and Crazy Bob Cook and Sven that actually physically put the cage together for that night. Is that well, true? Sven was there and and uh, Cowboy was there and also Dwayne Ludwig. Dwayne Ludwig. Okay. Dwayne yeah. Ludwig was there. Bob was there. I was there. Javier was there. It's like, I remember because the cage arrived overnight the day before the fight. Right, so I'm stressing out because they came over the Reno Pass. There's a storm in March. I mean, uh, yeah, it was in March. There was a storm. It got caught, and it was you know not a good experience. So it gets there. We start putting together, and what I realized was, oh my God, this thing is this thing is flimsy. This thing is a piece of crap. This is not a good cage at all. You could shake the cage, and so I'm like, man, when Frank hits that thing with Caesar, this thing's gonna just crumble. I did not enjoy the first fight we that we promoted I did, I did not enjoy that night I should it should have been something where you sit back and you go this look what we amazing, did man. Yeah. finally did it but you know what it's like uh, I, I just didn't enjoy it because I was so stressed out that at, when fighters were fighting and they hit the cage I'm like oh, that's it. <laughs> it's gonna break it's gonna break it's over and then every and then the commission's never gonna grant me another license and I'm done as a fight promoter and uh you know but Luckily, the cage held together, and this is no no lie. We were sitting around. I said, "So I told somebody, go to the hardware store and come back with two thousand zip ties." <laughs> if you look carefully at our cage, it literally had zip about two thousand zip ties <laughs> holding the cage and and the corners together because it was about to fall apart, <laughs> and um, it just was not. It was just it was just a stressful experience and and uh by the second fight when alistair fought Vitor belfort we had our act together got a new cage a real cage company and uh it was uh, something that you know that i didn't have to worry i, I could just relax and watch the fights and although although it was the second event where the bobby southworth uh james Irvin thing happened where the guy didn't get the cage closed but that wasn't the cage that's right that was the right. uh, the athletic commission guy didn't get the the thing latched before the well, fight really started. i don't know if it was the athletic commission guy or maybe one of my guys okay i don't want to throw anybody to the bus okay <laughs> but, but it was definitely somebody that didn't latch the cage on right yeah. and so that was a that was a the cage was built properly. It was sturdy. Didn't shake. There was no gaps. I mean, the first cage had a gap about six inches from the floor to the top, the first metal piece. I go, somebody's going to break their foot in that thing. Mm. Right? That's what I was thinking. I, yeah. We're all getting sued. We're all going to get sued. <laughs> but, but the second cage was perfect. It's just somebody didn't put the pin in. Didn't put the pin and in when here. Bobby um, comes flying through the cage, right? It was like, oh, here we go. And then... <laughs> Bike gets called off, but 
it's so it ironic. Was, it was, you, you survive the first one, and then that happens in the second yeah. one. You get a good cage, of course. <laughs> it, it was uh, it was the wild wild west for sure back then. And yeah. you know we had we had no TV at the time, right? right? We had no sponsors. It was just a live event show, and um, you know the first one we did eighteen thousand two hundred with right. Frank. The second one I think we did fourteen or fifteen thousand with Alistair versus Vitor. You know, so we you know I think we did pretty well coming out of the blocks, and. Um, you know, I think the rest is history. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about Frank. I, I definitely want to get into him. So I, I read that uh, in 2001, you actually tried to do Frank and Kazushi Sakuraba in, uh, in, in California, but the, I, the athletic commission said it just wasn't time. Is that, is that true? Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, Japan was asking Frank to go fight in Japan. I said, well, Frank, you don't have to go to Japan. Just tell them to come here. We'll do it here. But we could never get the rules approved. And, you know, Frank had a lawyer that I think we were representing Pride at the time, and he was going to all the commission hearings, and and it's just so foreign to people that don't understand, have a good understanding of what MMA is or what martial arts is. If you don't know, it just looks like two guys just beating each other up in the cage because you have no knowledge of what they're doing, right? So the the commission was not having any of it, and it took a long time to get to that point and i think lorenzo Fertitta was you know instrumental in getting approved and, and uh bringing on mark ratner and you know starting starting the, the new era of let's say the ufc i think they did a good job because they really uh you know changed the rules and got it uh got it um i would say like custom customized not customized but what's the word i'm looking for they got it um where it's has uniformity to it right it's uniform now. So you have the weight classes. It wasn't, think about the first UFC with Hoist Gracie, right? It's like. No weight classes. There's no rules, right? right? No nothing. Teeth are flying out. Right. Guys are getting poked in. <laughs> right. Guys are getting kicked in the groin here. Right. And I'm just, you know, people are like in shock, right? And it was advertised as a blood sport. And um, and I think that was a downfall for a while because then, the, then the, you know, as you, I mean, you guys, are, everybody knows this. This is like. The, the politicians turned on him. Yeah, the John McCain of, comment yeah. about it being human cockfighting. Just well, really... that's that's how they were advertising it. You know, yeah. the 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 Myers era was advertising mm -hmm. it like that, doing very well on pay per view, building a great business. But the politicians turned on it, and uh, I think it was Lorenzo going and uh, and and saying, "Look, guys, it's going to have weight classes. It's going to have a uniform that they have to wear, certain gloves." Excuse me, <laughs> and so. It has um, a structure to it. Maybe that's a better word. They have structure to it and becoming more acceptable with the structure. And, um, you know, it's, that's, that's really what it needed at that time because it's kind of looking like, looking like a, a, a bus sport. And, and back then it wasn't MMA. It was no holes barred. Right, NHB. Right, NHB. Right. So yeah. you practice NHB or you right. practice NHB. <laughs> right. So, you know, so it's come a long way. It, it, there's no doubt about that. And, and Frank has been a long time, long time, um, I would say defender uh, for sure, but somebody that's really pushed the purity of the sport and just the real martial arts spirit and all that. Was he always, it sounds like he was always the plan to be in the main event whenever you got to be able to do an MMA fight. Was that, was he always the guy that you were going to have in there for the main event? Yes. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, Frank and I are, you know, like I met him when he was trained with Javier and I just said, man, this guy is a big star. You know, he's already a star. Like he's fighting in the UFC champ, beat Kid Ortiz. He retired. 
And he did a couple of fights for us. Kid won kickboxing. He fought Elvis Sinisek in K1. But I said to Frank, Frank, uh, it may seem to become legal pretty soon. I didn't realize it was going to be like five years later, <laughs> but pretty soon. And if they do it, I want to do it. And I want you to do it with me. So you should be the first guy. You should be his part of history. And, and, and you should be the guy. And you, this is your town. And why not do it here first? Why do it in L.A. or, you know, do another in Sacramento? We should do it here. And so that's really uh, the conversation we had was, you know, you know, I want you to come out of retirement and come fight because this is going to be a historic event. He said, sure. And, and then, you know, we got Caesar to agree to the fight. Uh, but then it was like delay after delay after delay, mostly on the athletic commission side, trying to get the rules and regulations and, and the protocols and all the compliance issues uh, that when you're dealing with a, you know, a, a governmental agency in the state. Um, and, and then eventually I get a call and it was like, okay, we're going to go. Oh, we're going to go. When do you get, when do you, when do you, have, you get two months to do it? So I had to put that fight together. I think we put it together in like 10 weeks, you know, because there was just no time. I mean, athletic commission was like, approved, go. And, you know, they expect you to hit the ground running. And we did it. And you know what? To everybody's credit, everybody chipped in and, 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 and worked really hard to make that first show possible. And, you know, I think that uh, to be the first fight in this, the history of, well, it's a sanctioned fight. You yeah, know? Not, not like an right. Indian reservation. But right. First sanctioned fight in the state of California and for us to have the type of attendance and everything and have Frank fight on there and have Kung fight on there. It was, it was really something that's very special to me. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. Night. It was crazy. I was, I was there. I was at your last uh, kickboxing event um, the mm-hmm. year before when Kung fought, uh, I think it was Brian Eversall. Brian Eversall yeah. Yeah. And, and you brought up Ernie Reyes. He was recognized, you know, when the crowd gave him a nice hand. I was actually the only I was working for NBC Bay Area at the time as like a okay. pissant little production assistant. And I saw the passes in the sports department and I was like, Hey, I'll go. And I went and I was the only journalist that was actually there that night. And then it totally, you know, switched when MMA, you know, when the MMA event happened, but that night on the program, you had Gracie versus Shamrock or Shamrock versus Gracie on the program. And I was like, Oh, okay. We're going to see like, yeah, that's it. Like, okay, I'll be here whenever it is. And it didn't happen until the next year. But I, I wanted to ask about Caesar being on. Obviously, being seeing Shamrock versus Gracie, the first thing you're going to think of at that time is Ken versus Hoist, right? Like, right. they're, they're going to do Ken versus Hoist. And then, you know, I hear Frank, and I'm like, all right, well, that makes sense. He's a local guy. Caesar, I'd never heard of. I didn't know, I didn't know who that was. I'm curious about the choice of Caesar, if there were any other Gracies that were ever considered, or be, because Caesar was local and you probably knew him, you felt like he'd be the best fit. Like, kind of what was the, the thinking behind that? Was that? Okay. that was it. That was because he's a local guy here, and this is a local event, really, you know, just for the Bay Area. I think it turned into something much bigger than that, but really it was like, um, you know, which Gracie would make the most sense? Because, again, I was, you know, in the ticket-selling business, and I felt like, okay, Caesars Gyms will come, and all the students will come. And, you you know, weren't, it, it, there was no TV, like you said. You weren't thinking no about TV. it. Yeah. No TV. No, this, wasn't, this wasn't some national pay-per-view. Right. You know, this is like, let me just get my feet wet and see how it works. And, and I'll tell you, as we got closer to the fight, closer to the fight, um, you know, it was like, you know, we were opening up sections of the building by chunks, Right. And I get a call from Javier Mendez, uh, the afternoon of the fight. He's like, hey, I need to get some tickets from you from, you know, for so-and-so and so. And so. I'm like, 
well, just, you know, call so-and-so, you know, like call, you know, my assistant. Oh, no, no, she's out. And I go, oh, well, let me, let me look online. So I look online and the arena had opened up every section in the upper bowl and it was already sold out, mm. you know? And so I call my assistant, I go, hey, uh, did you did you sell my tickets yet? Because <laughs> I have family that want to come and, you know, that sort of thing. In fact, Dana hits me up on a text that night and goes, hey, um, Helen and Sean Shelby and uh, Kirk Hendrick want to come to the fight, but it sold out, mm-hmm. you know? And I said, I'll get them in. So I took care of them and, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a you know, piece of history that uh, having Sean and Kirk and, and Helen uh, married to Sean uh, at that time, you know, t- you know, they were there for the fight and checking it out. I go, hey, this must be pretty cool. And I, and I remember going by and saying hi really quick because, you know, I was like, I think I've been in the same clothes for like two days. <laughs> and I don't want to give anybody a hug. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because I, I, you guys were only expecting six or seven thousand. Yeah, people, we were right? for like, six or seven thousand. Yeah, yeah. Originally. I remember Steve Kersner from the arena, who's still there today, goes to me, "Hey, what do you think?" I go, "I don't know, maybe seven thousand, six thousand. Just let's just sell the lower ball, like you know, and and we'll drape it off. We'll put a little stage, and and then what happened was it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then what we did was we just started shrinking the production." Because production gets, you know, gets in the way of selling tickets, right? Sometimes, so mm-hmm. we just shrunk the production, shrunk the production, shrunk to where it's just a little thing in the in the middle of the of the cage right. because right. there's just no more seats left. So it was, it was, it was, it was a unbelievable moment as a fight promoter, just to see something organically take fire, and really become the event, you know, of that year, especially around around here. It was uh, it was quite exciting. Uh, so I got I got to ask regarding Caesar. I, the press release said he had a 14 and 0 record. I'm sure you've probably been asked about this before. He had not fought 14 times in MMA, of course. I mean, he had like he had a lot of jiu-jitsu, you know, battles and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Was that a a a uh, commission thing to in order to get, you know, cuz Frank had about you know, 30 fights? I I don't even know to be honest, you know, but I felt like look Caesar Gracie's had how many jujitsu matches? Yeah, right. Like hundreds, hundreds, hundreds. And this thing's going to get to the ground at some point, you know. Or that's what I thought, you know. And so to me, it's like it was such an unknown because there was there was not a lot of information, right, at that time, uh, back in '06 about, you know, what people have done, what they haven't done. But even today, when Ronda Rousey was fighting, you know, some of the fights that she fought, you know, she had like six fights fighting a girl that has twenty fights because. How many Olympic judo fights matches? And those count. I mean, to me, honestly, it's like if you fight in the big shows, um, what I mean by that is the big uh, like Olympic championships like Ronda did or Daniel Cormier in wrestling uh, or you're in the world championships like Aaron Pico or Ed Ruth and, you know, like that super elite level of athlete and you come into MMA, you, ha- you have that uh, certain experience of somebody that has – multiple fights already because you've already been through it and how many mat fights has Caesar Gracie had in his life, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's kind of like, look, it was unknown, you know, and he was, he was a guy that was a very famous martial arts, you know, teacher here. And so we put the fight together, but you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like at that time it was unknown, like how, how's this going to work? Right. And it's not uh, like the having it so uniform to say like it is today, it's a different it's a different era today than it was back in 05 and 06. Um, so 
to me, look, Caesar is a respected martial artist. He did the best he could. Frank was way too good for him. Knocked him out. But I wonder if it got to the ground, what would what would have happened? Because yeah. you know, I think I think, you know, Caesar's very good on the ground and that that was gonna be his game plan, but you know, it's it didn't work out for him. Uh, I guess maybe for your sake, it was good they didn't they didn't crash into the cage or anything either. So uh, Frank kept it on his feet, and the only ground play is when Caesar hit the ground after Frank hit him. So, um, the, so the, talk about the reaction after the event. I mean, obviously you're elated and all that stuff, but were you already thinking of a of the next event? The the next event was almost exactly three months to the day after uh, no. the first event. No, no, I was like, this could be twice a year, once a year. I'm okay <laughs> with whatever. Like, this is a lot of work, right? And um, it was, this is, this, is, this is a true story. It wasn't Frank that called me up. It wasn't any fighters that called me up. You know who called me up? Who? Take a guess. Oh, God. Uh, Dana? Nope. <laughs> the San Jose Arena called me up. And they're oh. like, when are we going to do this again? <laughs> so I'm, thinking, I'm thinking, oh. Next year? Thinking, I'll see you next year. <laughs> no, no, no. They, did, they wanted to do it right away because I'm telling you, between the Ticketmaster fees and all their concessions and their – I understood this is what I heard, that they had sold three hundred over $300,000 of, of concessions that night, right, mm-hmm. here on all food and parking. And it's probably a half a million dollar night for them just on ancillaries, right? So to me, it was like – they were on me, hey, when's the next one? I go, man, I, this is like the Monday after. I'm like, hey, I'm just relaxing. Like, I didn't want to talk about this. Like, right. give me to the end of the week. And then I didn't have a main event, right? Because I'm like, who's going to fight? Frank just fought. I'm like, you know, we had, we didn't have, I had one fighter under contract at the time. That was Frank, right? Mm. So I didn't have any fighters under a contract. So I'm like, talk to me next week. So I, 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 I think I traveled somewhere, went somewhere, Hawaii or something for a week, come home. And I talked to my friend, uh, actually, Ken Emai from K1. And uh, I said, Ken, I go, you know, I had this event that they want to do in the summer but I don't have a main event. And he said, hold on. He was managing Mirko Krokop at that time. I said, do you think Mirko will come fight uh, somebody really cheap? And so he's like, <laughs> he's like uh, no, Mirko doesn't understand what cheap means. But <laughs> let, me, let me call Saki Gibara. And so he called Saki Gibara and Saki Gibara said, okay, I'll send you a main event. He sends over Vitor Belfort and Alistair Ring to fight in the second fight. And that really was, Part of why, like throughout the history, you'll see Sakibara and I do things back and forth. And, um, you know, there's a certain amount of trust there when you've had a relationship since 06 with this man. And when he needed help, you know, uh, rebooting his Ryzen show, we would send fighters too because he was there for me in 06 and helped me out a lot. And then we had the really good relationship uh, sending back and forth the Gilbert Melendez, Kawajiri. Aoki, Josh Thompson going over there, you know, back and forth, training fighters. Uh, recently, it was De- Darren Caldwell, Couch, and uh, um, I forgot his name. But uh, we sent Darren Caldwell, and then he sent over Horiguchi. So, you know, so this back and forth with Japan, I loved it because it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that it has, the timing has to be right. And, you know, both fighting their champ against our champ, let's get it on. I had no problem with it, but um, you know that was really how long he Sakibara and I have been working together, you know, in this martial arts industry since back in '06 when he he sent over that fight, you know, for from Pride, and he didn't have to. He could have said no. That's a big fight. They could have done very well in Japan with that, but 
I think that, you know, my friend had a lot of influence with Mirko at the time and he wanted to help Mirko out. And so we were the beneficiary here in, in San Jose, although it ended up being a very boring fight. Yeah, yes. it was not a great fight. <laughs> it was, I was like, oh my God, this is not, you know, this is not what I expected. Right. It, it was so, actually originally supposed to be Randleman uh, and, uh, and Vitor right. and Randleman had a lung infection and pulled out. And then they, I guess they sent Alistair to, uh, to replace. That's right. That's what yeah. it was. And I'll tell you my, my story with Randleman when he shows up, cause he came to the fight or maybe the fight after he showed up in San Jose and he's like, Hey, uh, I'm really sorry about that. But I had an infection and you know, I want to show you my infection. Right. I'm oh. like, what? I go, really? Like, are you serious? Please, and his wife was there, right? And I'm like, okay, go ahead and show me. We're at a restaurant, right, in downtown San Jose. And so he, he uh, had a tank top on, and then he puts up his arm like this, and he had a gauze here in his armpit, like right in his armpit, in the ribcage. Takes out the gauze, and literally there's a hole this big in the side, the cavity of his body, that you can look, look straight into the cavity, you know? Oh, and uh, he's like, that's why I couldn't fight, man. I believe you. Whenever you're ready, buddy, just don't, <laughs> don't rush it. Because this guy, I mean, I was like, how are you not at the doctor's right now laying in a hospital bed, right? He, this guy was a warrior, man. Randleman mm -hmm. was a tough, tough guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, bless his soul, man. He was a very uh, so, uh, gentle giant, let's say, mm. let's say that, in the that his figure was so big and bigger than life. But if you really got a chance to talk to him, like he and I had a nice chat and his wife, they're just very nice people. And, and it, it's sad to see what happened, man. And it broke my heart, but that's my random story is he shows up, he shows up in San Jose, not to fight, but you know, to corner or something, or just to come hang out. And uh, when he lifted his armpit and started taking the gauze out, I was like, Oh my God, this is not good, man. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, how are you not? How are you not in the hospital somewhere? Like dealing with this? Oh no, no, I already got it, man. I got control over it. <laughs> well, he would fight in Strike Force eventually. Um, yeah. I, I want to be respectful of your time. Just a one more question before I let you go. But obviously, you you know you mentioned Kung Lee earlier. You know Gilbert Melendez, Josh Thompson, and Josh had been with the UFC and had fought in Pride before, but he was a local guy. Uh, is there one fighter that you? think kind of exemplifies what strike force was really about was there is there one guy that you know this is a homegrown guy that if one guy represented strike force i would think it would be this guy you know what i uh i have to say it has to be kung lee and, and i'll tell you why listen frank shamrock was already a big star here it wasn't like i had to go and, and you know build frank up he was already a big star he was walking around san jose and you know people were like, hey, he's like he was like rocky balboa here you know it's like he was <laughs> He was a big star. He's a king, you know? So it's not fair for me to say, oh, you know, Frank Shamrock was the guy because he was the guy, but I didn't have to do anything to make him the guy. He was already the guy. But if you talk about, you know, building someone's career, I think Kung Lee was that guy because, you know, a lot of people don't realize, like, he had a junior college wrestling background. But when I look at him as a martial arts and as a fighter, I don't think I've ever seen a fighter that can do it all. And what I mean by that was he started as a kid in point fighting, went to wrestle. He did Sancho. He did Kung Fu fighting. He did point fighting. He did um, kickboxing. He did Sancho, Sanda, which is a Chinese form of self-defense. And then 
he uh, fights the Sando for so long. Then he goes into MMA in his 30s, right? So, I mean, think about it. And he had good success. I mean, just think if this guy would have – no, and I'll tell you another one. Go look it up when he fought in Kokushin, right? This guy – and Kokushin's brutal. You know, you've seen it, I'm sure, right? He knocked out a killer fighter named Arnie Solgoda, who was a Kokushin fighter from Masayoshi's gym, actually, from K1 back in the day. And I think he's from Europe, but he's a Sado Kaikan, you know, old Kokushi guy. And, uh, but that was a brutal fight, man. And he knocked him out. And so when I look at him develop as a martial arts fighter, you know, it's very rare you see a fighter that can go f- do it all. Because think about how many, like, okay, you might be a good wrestler or you might be a good jiu-jitsu guy, but are you going to, okay, how about uh, you just come into the kickboxing arena? Now just go kickbox. Now go fight, almost like a bare knuckle fight in Kokushin, right? Go do uh, MMA, you know, go, go fight in point fighting. Are you going to be successful in all this range of combat? No, usually it's like one thing. Mm-hmm. And when I think about strike force, it wasn't called wrestle force for a reason, but <laughs> it wasn't called jujitsu force. Right. I wanted to feel like a strike. And, and, and to me, Kung was that guy. Well, Strikeforce ended up, when it was all said and done, to have a better finishing rate than uh, the UFC or Bellator, even the way that it stands right now as far as how many fights got finished. So the strike part of it, I think, you know, I think it came through in the end. But, um, Scott, really appreciate your time. I hope that we can have you back on for some future episodes. But this has been great diving into the history and the background of, of what got us where we wanted yeah. to get to. Next time I'll take you to the, the gym and I'll show you. We put all the posters up and everything. and We've got a great historical uh, poster collection going here starting from you know back in 85 so we got a lot of a lot of cool stuff going on the gym and I'll take you through a, a, a travel in history here for uh, you know between West Coast Productions and Strikeforce Kickboxing and Strikeforce and K1 and Bellator uh, it's uh, it's been a, it's been a it's been a lot of fun man and I really enjoy it and to me uh, you know martial arts combat is something I love I love martial arts and I'm going to keep doing this as long as I can. All right, I want to thank my very special guest, Scott Coker, for taking the time to join us on Inside the Hexagon. It was quite an honor, and I was really glad that he was able to make some time and join us, and I look forward to having him on uh, once again in the future and, and talk more about other Strike Force events and other the other behind-the-scenes uh, goings-on. But next week, we are going to be back with a, a uh, an event episode. We're going to talk about the second-ever Strike Force event, which was Revenge. Uh, this was a card where Coker was, was, uh, uh, was kind of forced to go away from his normal uh, approach, which was, you know, kind of headlined with a, a local major star. Instead, we ended up with Alistair Overeem versus Vitor Belfort, which was a rematch of a Pride event. Uh, and that, as we discussed with Scott and how it was supposed to be Kevin Randleman, uh, but he had to pull out and you heard the incredible story about Coker meeting with Randleman. We talk more about all of that in next week's episode. So make sure that you stay tuned. Uh, make sure you're following us on Twitter. Make sure you check us out on Instagram and make sure you subscribe We appreciate your time. We appreciate your support. And until then, we will see you next week.
Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast